This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I want to talk uh, about this question here. Uh, does, does evil disprove God? Um, I, I understand that one of the talks you had earlier in the semester was a look at an argument for God's existence, where uh, there was reasons being uh, given uh, to, to think that uh, God exists. Um, uh, and, and we're going to be looking at, at an argument tonight uh, that, that attempts to give reasons to think that God doesn't exist, and then how uh, we might respond to that, in particular uh, uh, drawing off the resources from some St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, so we're talking about the, the problem of evil, and when we think about the problem of evil, I think we can distinguish uh, different versions of the problem. Um, there's the existential, or what we might call the personal problem of evil. Um, that's, that's a problem about how I should uh, respond to evil and suffering in my own life, and how, how I can relate to God in the midst of, of suffering. Um, that's the existential or, or personal problem. We might think of a, a different kind of problem, a, a pastoral problem of evil. So how do we console and comfort others who, uh, who are suffering? What should we say to them? How should we respond? And then there's the theoretical problem of evil. The theoretical problem of evil is, is, is more of a, a kind of a theoretical a puzzle or question about how we could um, reconcile the sort of evil that we find in the world with the existence of God. And it's that last second, that third problem, the theoretical problem that, that I want to be focusing on here. Now, I hope to have time to say a few things about the existential problem uh, towards the end as well, but the focus is going to be on, on the theoretical problem. And the theoretical problem of evil, you can really think of as, as, as an argument against God's existence, uh, an argument that takes the evil we find in the world as evidence against the existence of God. And so I want to just set, set out the argument. I think it, it, it can be uh, pretty easily understood. Um, it begins with a, a premise uh, that just tells us uh, what we mean, or at least part of what we mean by uh, God, uh, if God exists. If God exists, then God is all good and all powerful. So pretty much all theists are going to think that, 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 that omnipotence and, and uh, goodness, perfect goodness, are going to belong uh, to, to God. If God exists, then he's at least these, these two things. If all, God is all good, one might think that, that God is going to eliminate evil as far as he can. Isn't, isn't being part of being all good wanting to uh, get rid of evil, see good thrive and evil uh, cast aside? So you might think if God is all good, then he'll eliminate evil as far as he can. It, on the other hand, if he's all powerful, um, then there aren't any limits to what God can do, or at least might, we might think no non-logical limits. So we might think, you know, maybe it's impossible for God to do things that involve a logical contradiction, you know, create uh, square circles or something like that. But otherwise, if God is all-powerful, there aren't, aren't limits to what he can do. So um, if God eliminates evil as far as he can, uh, which seems to follow from his being all good, and if there are no non-logical limits to what God can do, then it looks like 
there just wouldn't be any evil, right? God would have no limits, right? He can, he can eliminate evil, he can do it, and he would, since he's all good, so it looks like there wouldn't be any evil in the world. That's what we might expect. But, of course, uh, there is evil in the world, quite a lot of it. Um, and so what follows from all of that? Well, what follows from all of that, uh, if those premises uh, are true, uh, these are valid inferences, and so what follows from that is that God does not exist. So what I'm calling the theoretical problem of evil here is it really, you can think of it as an argument from evil against God's existence. And it's probably, it's, I mean, it may be the, the most, uh, many people think it's the most powerful of the arguments against God's existence. Some people think it's the only serious argument against God's existence. Um, uh, it's the sort of argument that, that it gives some philosophers reasons to think that God doesn't exist, but probably non-philosophers as well sometimes might lose faith or, or something or, or believe in God because of uh, the, the evil that they encounter in the world. When, when talking about uh, the problem of evil and this argument of evil, um, we usually distinguish two different types of evil. Uh, moral evil or what we might call evil done, uh, and natural evil, evil suffered. Moral evil is just when we do bad stuff, right? When we, when we, uh, when through our own fault, uh, we, we do what we shouldn't do, or we fail to do what we ought to do. So I take it, we know what this guy's doing here, um, right? It would be an example of moral evil. Uh, natural evil or evil suffered would be uh, just when, when someone or something is harmed in some way, in some other way. So right, someone suffering from, from cancer right, or, or some other serious illness or injured in some way or another. And sometimes the cause of evil suffered, of, of harm, of natural evil, sometimes it could be... Uh, Someone doing something wrong or doing something bad could be the re reason another is harmed. But one could also be harmed uh, apart from uh, anybody having done anything uh, to you or, or bad or neglected you in any particular way. One might be suffer, you know, from from the forces of nature or from some from an illness that you know not really anyone's fault that you have, but you just uh, succumb to it. Um, so we've got moral evil and we have natural evil. And if we're thinking about responses to this argument from evil, usually both of these sorts of evil have to be talked about and dealt with, and we'll do that um, tonight. I think it's worth saying a little bit about um, the burden of proof, uh, where the burden of proof lies in this discussion. Um, and my own view is that the burden of proof lies with the one giving the argument, right? So if one is giving an argument for God's existence, the burden of proof lies for the person giving the argument to really establish and support well the premises of that argument. Right? Um, and I think likewise, if somebody's giving an argument against God's existence, like we're looking at here, the burden of proof is really on, on them, right? They need to, to uh, establish uh, the truth of the premises. Uh, and I think the one responding to that argument um, I think should say something, right? 
uh, should give some plausible reason to think that the evil we find in the world is consistent with God, understood as all good and all powerful. Um, but I think one can say something plausible without pretending to know all the reasons God permits the evil that he does. Right? So what I'm going to do in this talk is I'm going to try to suggest, drawing off the resources of, of St. Thomas, uh, some reasons that, that seem, at least to me, plausible why we would find the sort of evil that we find in the world uh, uh, despite the fact that the world is created and governed by uh, an all-good, all-powerful being, God. Well, so let's take a, a suggestion from, from St. Thomas uh, to begin with. So I'll read this passage and you can follow along with me. Thomas says, many good things would be taken away if God permitted no evil to exist. And he gives some examples. For fire would not be generated if air was not corrupted, nor would the life of a lion be preserved unless the ass were killed. Neither would avenging justice nor the patience of a sufferer be praised if there were no injustice. So what is, what is St. Thomas saying here? Uh, he seems to be pointing out that you really can't get rid of, of certain sorts of evils without also giving up certain sorts of goods. And this suggests a possible general way or form of response to the argument from evil, uh, that it, it may be that the reason God permits evil is because uh, were he to eliminate evil, right, it wouldn't be just the evil that he was eliminating, but also what would get thrown outside the picture of creation would be certain goods, right? Because you can't eliminate the, the evils in question without also eliminating or precluding or ruling out the goods. So if we, if we take that thought and we, we go back to the argument we were looking at before, the argument from evil against God's existence, we, and it's always good to ask ourselves, uh, which premise would, would St. Thomas reject, given the passage we just looked at before? What premise of that argument would he reject? He needs to reject one of them. Uh, and I think, he, I think he would reject uh, premise two here, right? The, the premise that claims that if God is all good, then God eliminates evil as far as he can, right? Um, I think Thomas would say, well, not necessarily, right? Because... Uh, it may be that God can't eliminate evil, certain evils, without also uh, eliminating or precluding or ruling out certain goods. But if God really wants those goods as a part of his creation, uh, then he's going to permit, uh, he might well, anyway, permit those certain evils in order that those goods be possible. So it doesn't necessarily follow simply from God's being all good that he's going to eliminate evil as far as he can. I think Thomas would uh, would say, right? Well, let's see how this uh, how this unfolds. Um, and uh, I said we need to talk about natural evil uh, as well as moral evil, um, evil uh, uh, evil done, moral evil, uh, natural evil, evil suffered. Um, we'll spend more time, I think, talking about natural evil here, but we'll we'll say some things about moral evil as well. I want to suggest uh, three reasons that I think at least uh, 
St. Thomas would, would propose as to why God might, uh, I think Aquinas thinks that he reason why God does, in fact, uh, permit natural evil. The first one is, is one that I'll spend the most time on because I think it's probably the, the least familiar, uh, will be the least familiar to you of these, these ideas. Um, and it's the idea that, that natural evil actually just comes along with, it's part of the package, if you will, of God's creating a material universe or ecosystem. It's just, it's a package deal that to create a material universe or ecosystem is also going to be to uh, bring with it uh, uh, natural evil. The second is um, that God might permit natural evil that we not become satisfied or complacent in the enjoyment of this world. And a third uh, reason, uh, in order to make possible moral and spiritual goods, which presuppose natural evil. So let's talk about this first one here, that this idea that natural evil comes along with creating the good of a material universe or, the good of, a, or an ecosystem. Um, and, and to get at this idea, I think it's going to take us some time, time to develop a bit. But I think the uh, an initial preliminary is for us to think a little bit about the, the different kinds of material things. Yes? I kind of have a question, and this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently. This is probably good to talk about, but in like in the book of Proverbs, I think um, they say like God did not create death, yeah, and yet there are like predatory animals. So like, did he create? Well, let's let's come back to that. What, well, I think we're going to have time for Q and A, so I think that that'll take us too far off the. I mean, it's related, of course. It's a relevant question. It's a good question. But let's try to get them, let me try to get the main material out, and then we can come back to stuff like that in the Q&A, okay? Um, I, I think to under, understand this first idea that natural evil might just be sort of part of the package of creating a material universe or ecosystem, I think we need to uh, begin by just thinking about uh, the different kinds of material things or different kinds of, of material substances. So they're non-living material substances, right? Uh, uh, fire and water, uh, maybe the elements on a periodic table or something like that uh, would be an example of, of, they're not alive, right? They're not animate, presumably, right? Uh, but they're material substances, material things. Um, then we have um, the most basic sort of, of living things, um, what, what we might call, I think uh, Thomas would call the vegetative life forms. that have just the, the, the simplest sort of capacities that anything that we would call alive have to have, so the ability to take in nutrition, to grow, to reproduce. Um, so examples of these sorts of life forms would be, would be plants and, and, and even simpler kinds of, of, of life forms. Um, a, a next level up, you might think, is uh, uh, animals, right? Animals have these capacities the capacity to take in nutrition and grow and reproduce and so forth. So they have these, these basic kinds of capacities that, say, plants have, but they also have additional capacities. Um, the powers of sensation, right, which bring with it uh, the ability to experience desire, to, to desire things and to experience pleasure and pain. And then you have this special kind of animal, the human being, right, traditionally I defined as a rational animal, which has all these fundamental capacities 
that plants and non-rational animals have, uh, but also have the capacity uh, to, to reason uh, and uh, to engage in acts of will, whereby they make free choices, right, make choices and so forth, uh, um, uh, where they desire and pursue things that are, that are uh, judged to be good to them by their reason and not simply by their senses. So like when you take, uh, when you take a medicine that, that tastes disgusting to you and the level of, se of the senses is, is purely repugnant, this is how NyQuil is for me. <laughs> I don't know if you, uh, I, when I, but when I have a, a really bad cold and need a good night's sleep, right? I'll, I'll drink NyQuil, and it's not because I desire it because of anything that is apprehended at the sensory level. It's because I judge that it will be, uh, be good for me in this particular situation. Uh, that's a capacity that comes along with reason. That's why I will to take the NyQuil, even though it's repugnant to me at the level of the senses. So we have all of these, we have different kinds of, of, of material things. Non-living material things, and then living material things, with, but that seem to be arranged in a kind of hierarchy in so far as, although it's, they're listed in the sort of descending here, but in so far as the things at the next level have the capacities of the type that were in the uh, lower level, right? Uh, but then more, right? All right. Now, as we kind of continue thinking about the preliminaries here a little bit, um, it, it's worth thinking a little bit about what Thomas says about uh, why God creates uh, and the way in which the diversity of creatures adds to the perfection of the universe. And so I'm going to, we're going to look at a long passage here, if you'll bear with me, but I think it's, it's helpful uh, in setting up the way it ways, uh, Thomas thinks about this. So he says, first of all, God, God brought things into being in order that his goodness might be communicated to creatures and be represented by them. Why did, why did God create? In order that his goodness might be shared with creatures and that these creatures uh, with whom he shared his goodness might reflect that goodness. They might have that goodness, some goodness, a share in that goodness themselves by which they can reflect and image in various ways uh, the divine goodness. That's why he brought things into being. But he goes on, uh, because, his, because God's goodness could not be adequately represented by one creature alone, he produced many and diverse creatures that what was wanting, what was lacking to one in the representation of the divine goodness might be supplied by another. Hence, the whole universe together participates, shares, reflects the divine goodness more perfectly and represents it better than any single creature whatever. So the, the divine goodness here is, is, is inf infinite goodness, perfect goodness is the thought here. And any creature is only going to have finite goodness. It's only going to be able to, to reflect that infinite good of God in some finite, limited way. And so the, the perfection of God, while really a Thomas would say it couldn't actually be reflected by any amount of creatures, but it's, it's going to be better reflected if you've got more creatures and a diversity of creatures 
which can, each one can reflect God's perfection in some way and, and is not really able to reflect it in some other way, but that other way might be reflected in some other sort of creature, right? And then that whole universe taken together is going to reflect God's goodness better than any single one would or than any, any, um, any single portion of it, all right? And then he continues, natural things, and I think here we're thinking of, of material substances of the sort that we were looking at on the previous slide, the different kinds of, of material substances. He says, they seem to be arranged in degrees. So I was talking about a kind of hierarchy. They seem to be arranged in degrees. As mixed things are more perfect than the elements. And plants than minerals. Right? The idea of plants is a, is a higher kind of form of material substance than the mineral. And animals than plants. And men than other animals. And each of these one species, one type, kind of, of thing, is more perfect than others. Therefore, as the divine wisdom is the cause of the distinction of things for the sake of the perfection of the universe, so it is the cause of inequality, for the universe would not be perfect if only one grade of goodness were found in things. First of all, there, it, the universe better reflects God's goodness if there are diversity of kinds of things. And not all these kinds of things are sort of, uh, are, have uh, an equal level of perfection. Some kinds of things have greater perfection than another, right? But the fact that there is this diversity of, of things in, in nature with different levels of perfection, all of that, right, contributes to the perfection of the universe and enables the universe better to reflect the divine goodness than it would if there weren't all of this great diversity of different sorts of things, okay? All right, so <laughs> this, you, you maybe noticed, remember this line, fire would not be generated if air was not corrupted in that passage we saw earlier from Thomas where he's saying, you know, if, if God did not permit certain evil in the universe, that, then uh, certain goods would be precluded or ruled out. And he gives, maybe I think as his first example, fire would not be generated if air was not corrupted. Right? And you, you think about uh, what's going on when fire burns, right? And oxygen or air is consumed. Uh, you know, I, I don't think Thomas would have known the details of sort of the, the, the molecular structures here and so forth, but he would have been aware, right, that fire consumes air, right? And he would view uh, air being consumed when fire acts, it acts in a way at the expense of, of air that is consumed in the process. Well, uh, here's a key premise uh, that, that I think governs Aquinas' understanding of, of, of the, the, the way that uh, the material universe and natural evil come as a kind of a package, that when it comes to material things, it's, it's of the very nature of material things, the very nature of material things, that they are vulnerable to decay and corruption. That's part of what it is to be a material thing, is to be vulnerable to decay and corruption. And in a world of interacting material objects, the action of some objects deprives, corrupts, or uses up other objects. 
in the way here that you can see sort of the, the air and oxygen being used up right uh, uh, in, uh, in the, the, the burning of the flame, okay? But another example, right? And he, he Thomas says, you know, is uh, an example of, of a good that would be precluded or ruled out if it weren't for a certain yeah, evil, right? A lion would cease to live if there were no slaying of animals. Uh, the, the lion uh, flourishes in a way. It's characteristic action uh, uh, by which it flourishes, right, uh, ha has a downside for the lion's prey, obviously. But this is, this is the nature of, of a material world, of a material ecosystem, that, first of all, any kind of material object is, by its very nature, uh, subject vulnerable to decay and corruption. Uh, and secondly, that these interacting material things uh, interact in ways at the expense of each other, uh, one thing flourishing at the expense of, of another. Um, you can see it in this sort of picture of, a, of an ecosystem, right? You know, you've got uh, you know, small fish and snails, right, feeding off of, of plants, right? And they, they live and thrive in some ways at the expense of, of, of the plants or the algae or whatever it is that they're going after. And, and bigger, bigger fish feeding on smaller fish, birds feeding on fish and insects and snakes and so forth um, in, in this system here. And Thomas uh, commenting on this sort of thing, he says, that, that corruption and defects in natural things, in other words, natural evils, uh, they're said to be contrary to some particular nature. So, um, you know, it, it's <laughs> this poor fish here, there's, it, there's something, it, it's enduring a, a wound, har a harm, if you will, um, uh, and defect, right? Uh, so corruption defects in natural things are said to be contrary to some particular nature, yet they are in keeping with the plan of universal nature inasmuch as the defect in one thing yields to the good of another. The defect in one thing yields to the good of another. Since God then provides universally for all being, it belongs to his providence to permit certain defects and particular effects that the perfect good of the universe may not be hindered. For if all evil were prevented, much good would be absent from the universe. So the perfect good of the universe is going to involve the whole uh, diversity of different kinds of, of, of material things. Uh, and it's of the very nature of these sorts of things that, that they're going to interact in these ways that, that bring about defects in the one or the other Right, but the but the the whole system, the perfection of the whole universe, right, um, uh, is actually, I mean, you would in effect if you got rid of natural evil altogether, you would be chucking out things like ecosystems. You would be chucking out uh, um, at least a material universe, right. And this raises a question, right? Uh, maybe that's what God should have done, right? Um, so I, I, I've been arguing here uh, uh, with Thomas that uh, it is sort of a, 
natural evil comes as a kind of package deal with the material creation, right? It's of the very nature of material things to be vulnerable, subject to decay and corruption. And for they, them to interact uh, one at the expense of another, that's the nature of a, of a material world. Um, so, well, maybe God shouldn't have created a material world, if that's the nature of it. I mean, this is one, one possibility one might raise. Maybe God should have created only angels or spiritual beings. Now, what are angels? Angels are non-material things. They're non-material substances, despite the way we, we represent them in art, right? With, with bodies and wings and so forth like that. What they are, in fact, at least what Thomas thinks and the tradition thinks they are, is they're non-material, purely spiritual uh, beings, uh, which means they don't have the uh, nature which is subject to decay and corruption. An angel is by its very nature immortal, right? It's not, it's not subject to decay and corruption like material stuff, right? Uh, so maybe God should, uh, should have only created angels. Uh, uh, Aquinas would think God, God has in fact created many, 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 many angels. There are lots of angels that he created. Maybe he should have just left it there, right? Um, no material world, maybe. Um, no non-living material substances, no plants or other non-sentient life forms, no animals, no human beings. Maybe that's what a good God uh, would, would have done or should have, have done. So we can ask questions like this. Would it have been better for God not to have created trees or non-living material substances like fire? whose action can harm trees. I mean, because it's of the very nature of trees to be vulnerable to fire. It's of the very nature of fire, right? To be a threat, at least in certain circumstances, to trees. Maybe God should have created trees in fire. Right? Um, would it have been better for God not to have created lions and wildebeests? Would it have been better for God not to have created human beings? Right? Or, or substances like water whose action can harm human beings. Well, I mean, I think that's, I think that Thomas would say is, is really the question to ask here, right? Um, so that I think a lot of people, when they are thinking about natural evil, what they would really like is they would like, they, they want to keep their material universe, they want to keep their ecosystems, they kind of like that, right? But they want, they want it somehow without any natural evil, but I think Thomas is saying, you just don't understand, I think, the nature of, of ecosystems or, or the material world. What you're really asking for is that God had stopped after creating the angels and not created the material world. And when you put the question that way, it's not so obvious, right, that it would have been better for God uh, to have left it with the angels and not created uh, a material reality, because material reality actually seems an ecosystem seems quite good. There's a, there's a ton of good there, right? Uh, a good we appreciate, right? Apart from the goodness that it contributes to reflecting uh, all that is, you know, or as much as we can get from the, the divine threat perfection. Okay. Sometimes we might ask, okay, what about uh, natural evil before the, the fall, okay? So in the Christian doctrine, uh, uh, human beings were created 
uh, in a state of, of, of grace. Um, um, and they fell from grace through disobedience to God. Um, and one question that might naturally arise in this context is where was natural evil in the garden, <laughs> right? In the garden of Eden. Um, um, because I have argued here, uh, Thomas seems to be arguing here, that it's of the very nature of material reality to be, to be subject and vulnerable to natural evil. But this looks like material reality, doesn't it? And you don't see a lot of natural evil here, do you? What does Thomas say about this, at any rate? Um, he thinks that human beings from the very beginning, Adam and Eve before the fall, let's say, he thinks that by their, their nature, they very much were vulnerable, subject to decay and corruption. They were material substances, and it's part of the nature of material substances to be vulnerable in this way. Uh, and, and other animals, right? You know, the lion and the lamb are laying down here together, but other animals and, and plants and so forth very much vulnerable to and subject to corruption and, and decay. Um, he thinks in the case of, of uh, human beings before the fall, God gave them special gifts to protect them from these natural vulnerabilities. So it's, it's not that they weren't by nature vulnerable to corruption and decay, but they were protected in a, by kind of special gifts and graces from God from, from what, that to which they were naturally vulnerable. He doesn't think that the, that the, that the lower animals were protected in that way. So um, if that's what this particular image is suggesting here, that lions didn't eat lambs and so forth in, in the, in the, before the fall, um, I think Aquinas doesn't think that's right. Um, actually. But he thinks human beings were, were protected. Um, but he thinks when, when they fell, uh, when they disobeyed God and, and fell from, from grace, uh, that those special gifts of protection from the vulnerabilities to which they were naturally vulnerable as material substances, that those were removed. Right? That those were removed at that time. Um, removed as a punishment uh, yes, perhaps. But you might also think even more so as a, as a mercy. Um, why would you think that that would have been mercy, merciful for, for God to have removed those, those uh, special protections? Um, because in the fallen state that human beings were in, um, there would be a great temptation, I think, uh, for human beings to remain or pursue heaven on earth, basically, right? To think uh, uh, that uh, and to be satisfied entirely with the, the goods of this world, right? As opposed to the good for which they were created, which was union with God in heaven. And so, especially in their fallen state, they're vulnerable to this. And natural evil uh, has a way of... Uh, shaking up one's, one's uh, complacency or satisfaction with this world. It's hard to be completely complacent and completely satisfied in a world uh, where one, oneself and others are so vulnerable to suffering uh, and to death. Um, 
And this brings us to, to a second uh, reason uh, why I think Thomas would think God permits natural evil. This looks like heaven, doesn't it? It's pretty good anyway, right? Um, and it is that we, that we not become satisfied or complacent, complacent in the enjoyment of this world. Um, I don't know about, about you, but it's, it's quite easy for me, especially when things are going well, to be satisfied and, and, uh, with the things of this world. Because the things of this world are wonderful, right? There, there's so much that can be enjoyed in this world. The goods of this world are, are, are real and they're satisfying in, in so many ways and so many different levels. Um, um, the goodness of this world, it, it, the, the capacity of things to satisfy uh, desire, uh, even the capacity of finite creatures to do so, it, is, uh, is so strong that it would be very easy for us to think that, that our purpose was just simply to take enjoyment in the things of this world. When actually, um, it, you know, Aquinas, along with the rest of the, the Christian tradition, would say that we're ultimately, it's only God ultimately that can truly satisfy us. Right? And so we're ultimately created for union with God, not for union even with things as beautiful as this scene here, right? Um, so we, we find uh, Thomas here, he's, he's quoting uh, St. Gregory the Great. Um, but you, you, I take it he's, he's affirming this thought here. Uh, the evils which weigh us down here drive us to go to God. Right? Okay, so you ask, well, why does God commit uh, natural evil? Well, one, another reason might be uh, that the natural evils here that we encounter drive us to go to God. Right? Uh, this scene here, not so much. <laughs> anyway, maybe for some people, maybe for people who are better than I am anyway, they, they, this might be a, a, a moment of inspiration or a communion with God. Uh, or, or it might, for me, it might just be, dang, I might, I might start worshiping this right, as God. Um, the evils which we weigh us down here drive us to go to God. Here's a passage from uh, Augustine's uh, Confessions where he's talking uh, about um, the, the long journey he took uh, prior to his conversion, and he's reflecting back on it, and he's addressing God here. Uh, you, God, were always present, raging against me in your mercy, and scattering the most bitter vexations over all my illicit joys, so that I would look for a joy that had no vexation, and find that I could have none outside of you, O Lord, outside of you who makes suffering into a teacher, and strike in order to heal, and kill us lest we die apart from you. Um, so the natural evil here is, is, a, is a teacher, a, a disciplinarian in a way, uh, that is uh, like, a, like, a, like good discipline will do. It is trying to direct us towards uh, what is ultimately good for us. And Aquinas is going to, of course, think that what is ultimately good for us, our ultimate end is to be found in, in God, not in, in, uh, in creatures. Augustine as well. Okay. Um, and we get this, this sort of idea in, in Scripture as well from Hebrews. For the Lord disciplines him whom he loves and chastises every child whom he receives. Do you know who this 
you probably, I take it you know who this is. Yeah. Right, you know who this is? Damien uh, Damien of Molokai. And what's his story? He's the guy who went to Molokai with the lions. Yeah, he went to he, he went to serve the lepers, right, in the leper colony, and then ended up, of course, contracting leprosy himself. Um, two two of rel you know relatively modern saints, knowing knowing known for their heroic charity, right in response to uh, the sufferings of, of, of the world. Uh, it, it, it is the case that uh, the natural evils we find in the world, among the things that it makes possible, it are moral and spiritual goods, which seem to presuppose those natural evils. Uh, heroic acts of, of, of charity of the sort that you find uh, in, in those two and, and many others who, you know, all, really all around us who are, who are less well known. So various reasons why God might permit natural evil. Uh, I focus mostly on the idea that I, I take it as probably the, maybe the newest to many of you, which is just the package deal with creating a, a, a material universe. But if you want the good of a material universe or ecosystem, then natural evil is going to come along with it. And then uh, a couple of others, right, that we not become complacent or satisfied in the enjoyment of this world and in order to make possible moral and spiritual goods which presuppose natural evil. Um, so there's a sense in which your God is permitting natural evil for the sake of certain goods uh, that he once realized in his creation. And, uh, but uh, if the Christian account is, is true, I mean, I, I'm a subscriber to it, um, the, the God who is in his own nature uh, uh, impassable and invulnerable to, to suffering, uh, created a world in which suffering was going to be present, uh, and, but he did not leave his creatures alone uh, to, to suffer, uh, but took on a, a nature that enabled him to suffer uh, uh, with them and, and for them, and actually for the sake of, of their, uh, their redemption. Let me talk about... Um, about moral evil, uh, why God might permit moral evil. I'm going to spend less time on, on this than natural evil. Um, but uh, here's a common response. You've probably heard of this one, right? The, the free will defense. Right? How does the, the free will defense go? Uh, the thought is that um, the world is better if, if we, if human beings, have morally significant freedom. So the freedom to to choose between right and wrong, good and bad. That's, that's part of what makes our, our lives meaningful and significant, that we have morally significant freedom. And the thought is that, uh, well, that kind of freedom God can't give us if he at the same time ensures that we never make evil choices. So according to the free will defense, you know, God's got a decision to make. He can either ensure that we always act well Right? But, or he can give us morally significant freedom to choose between good and evil, but he can't give us both, right? Were he to ensure that we always act well, that would deprive us of morally significant freedom. So the, the, the judgment here is that the morally significant freedom is worth the risk that we would use that freedom to do that, that stuff. Okay? Uh, but it's got it at fault. Right here, right for 
or is it inconsistent with the goodness of God here to give us morally significant freedom? Well, not if morally significant freedom is, is really uh, such an important and worthwhile thing, right? It's worth the, worth, uh, the risk that we will misuse it. Here's a quite, I think, different sort of proposal. Uh, um, and, and I guess one thing to, to note about, about this free will defense is it, it assumes a certain understanding of the relationship between God and God's providence and human freedom. It, it assumes that if God is going to give us free will, that that places outside God's hands, or basically outside God's providence, how we use that freedom. Okay? Um, now, now a, a lot of philosophers and theologians have thought that's true. right? God's going to give us freedom. It places outside God's hands how we use that freedom. But a lot of thought that it's, it's not true, that actually God could give us free will and, and still have our free actions fall under his providence or sovereignty. On my own reading, Aquinas actually thinks that. He thinks that giving us freedom does not place how we use that freedom outside God's hands. And if that's right, it seems like the free will defense may not work for such, such philosopher theologians. They're going to need another kind of response. So here's, here's a different sort of response that, that uh, could work for them, uh, at least potentially. Um, the idea is it, it's God permits moral evil not because our free choices are outside God's hands. Um, the thought here is God could, could have created a world in which we always freely choose the good. Um, rather, uh, God permits us to choose evil because of the good that moral evil makes possible. The thought is, is that, that there are, are goods that moral evil makes possible, and that's why God permits it. So here's a passage from Thomas um, where you see this sort of idea. Many goods are present in things which would not occur unless there were evils. For instance, there would not be the patience of the just if there were not the malice of their persecutors. There would not be a place for the justice of vindication if there were no offenses. Okay? So certain virtues here, uh, patience, justice, um, forgiveness and mercy also. So here's a contemporary um, Thomistic uh, philosopher who points out that there are certain kinds of exercise of free will that presuppose the existence of people who choose evil. For example, acts of forgiveness and mercy are not possible unless there are people who actually do evil things for which they can be forgiven. For, pe for people freely to choose to act in a forgiving and merciful way, then, is possible only in a world in which other people have actually chosen to do evil. So how important is it that, that the world be a world that in which uh, acts of mercy and forgiveness are actually realized, that they actually take place in the, in the world that God has created. If that's really important, then a necessary condition for that is that there are people who do things that need to be forgiven, right? That people need mercy, right? Um, if God is to actually act in a, in a merciful way, forgiving sins, atoning for, for sins, uh, uh, if that's an important thing that God wants to realize in creation, 
you for uh, the, the, the Easter proclamation of happy fall, right? You're, if you go to the Easter vigil, right? Um, and then somebody gets up and sings about the bees and so forth. You, know, <laughs> you put that on your calendar uh, if you have it, right? But one of the, the lines from there, oh, happy fall, oh, necessary sin of Adam, which gained for us so great a redeemer, right? So some have, have uh, looked to... Uh, things like atonement, right? The atonement is being an incredibly sort of great-making feature or property of the, the world, that the world is such that, uh, that God uh, atones for our sins, but of course a necessary condition of that is that there be sin, sin and evil. Uh, a necessary condition of, of atonement is sin and evil, and so if you think that as this particular author, author Alan Plantinga, a very prominent uh, philosopher, Christian philosopher, thinks, uh, sin and evil is a necessary condition of the value of every really good world because he thinks that really any the best worlds, I mean, this is a stronger, I think, than you actually would need to claim to use this sort of defense, but he thinks that, that uh, every really good possible world is going to have uh, God's incarnation and atoning work. Okay? But all of that presupposes logically uh, that there's sin to be atoned for. Right. So the, the idea here is that there are there there's other ways besides the free will defense uh, in which somebody might try to, to uh, explain why God permits uh, moral evil. Why? Because of the, the goods that moral evil makes possible. All right. So why might God permit evil? I'm going to wrap this up now, and then uh, I think we're about out of time. Uh, just quickly, right? Natural evil. Why might God permit natural evil? Well, arguably it just comes along with the good of, of a material universe. It's a sort of a package deal um, that we might become satisfied or complacent in the enjoyment of the things of this world and in order to make possible moral and spiritual good, which presuppose natural evil. Now notice that, all, that these, are, these three here are, can be held together. I think. I mean, that is to say, one wouldn't have to choose among these, right? One could think that all of these play some role in why God commits natural evil. Moral evil, uh, maybe the free will defense, that is to say that our having a choice between good and evil requires that God permit there to be moral evil. Um, or maybe simply that the instantiation of certain goods uh, presupposes moral evil. But at any rate, um, if, if, if these uh, or other sorts of suggestions uh, are, are plausible reasons why God might permit uh, evil that we find in the world, uh, then it gives uh, reason to, to question the second premise of this argument. Uh, it's not that uh, if God is all good that he would eliminate evil as far as he can, because it may be uh, that he can't eliminate all evil without also losing goods that he thinks are important to include within uh, creation. Okay, I'm going to stop there um, in the Q&A. If we want, we could talk a little bit about the existential problem. I said I was going to say a few things at the end, but I think I probably should 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 you call it five minutes. But do you want me to just continue with that, or do you want to? We're good. Sure. Matthias, your call. Okay. Well, I'll do it. Um, so I actually think that, uh, I mean, the existential probability is how should I respond uh, to, to, 
to the suffering in my own life? It's a different kind of uh, question, isn't it, than the theoretical problem. The theoretical problem is about whether I should think God exists in the light of the evil of the world. The existential problem is how should I respond uh, to the evil in my own life? And I think, uh, I think the, the Catholic intellectual tradition has as a profound an answer to this question of, of any that I, I know of. Um, and that is, is that uh, how should we respond? Well, it's uh, encountering evil, suffering from it is an opportunity to share in the, in the priesthood of Christ, actually. Um, look at this passage from, uh, from Luke, the Gospel of Luke, uh, where uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples. And he says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then he goes on, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, that's a really, it's sort of an interesting, we're familiar with that passage probably, right? But it's, it's, it's a really interesting question. What is, what is, Jesus talking about there. If anyone would come after me, come after me in what sense, right? Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up his cross and follow him. Yeah. What? Why? To, to what end? And then there's this passage of St. Paul um, in Colossians says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I complete what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. There's this idea, I think, that, that we can unite our suffering, right, uh, to the suffering of, of Christ. And when we do so, it can actually become redemptive, can contribute to the redemption of, of the world the salvation of souls. And if we're suffering in a way, in union with Christ's suffering, that contributes to the salvation of souls, what are we doing? Well, we're, we're sharing in the priesthood of Christ in a way. We're participating in that. Um, you've heard of the priesthood of, belie of believers. I mean, every, all Christians, by virtue of baptism, right, take on a priestly office, a prophetic office, a kingly office. Um, I wonder if that's not in, in what Christ is suggesting here. Come after me and what's, take up your cross daily. Follow me in what sense, right? Participate in my priestly sacrifice through your own suffering for the redemption of the world. Um, and we get, we get this uh, supported in, in the catechism of, of the Catholic Church, um, Suffering can have a redemptive meaning for the sins of others. Um, in union with the passion of Christ, suffering acquires a new meaning. It becomes a participation in the saving work of Jesus. Um, John, John Paul II, St. John Paul II uh, wrote uh, of this. Uh, in Salvifici Dolores, he says, Insofar as man becomes a sharer in Christ's sufferings, to that extent he is, 
He, in his own way, completes the suffering through which Christ accomplished the redemption of the world. Christ does not explain in the abstract the reasons for suffering, but before all else, he says, follow me, come, take part through your suffering in this work of saving the world, a salvation achieved through my suffering. Take part in that through your suffering and the work of saving the world. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Um, so in the spiritual dimension of the work of redemption, suffering faithful is serving, like Christ, the salvation of his brothers and sisters. Therefore, he is carrying out an irreplaceable service. So don't let your suffering go to waste. It's a, what one wise person I heard once put it, right? So suffering, and you ask, what, what, how do I personally respond to the suffering in my own life? The existential problem of evil. Um, I think the, the answer here is um, unite, use that suffering, put that suffering to, to good use for the redemption of, of souls. Unite your suffering to the suffering of Christ for the redemption of, of the world. Um, uh, if, is that, if that's possible, <laughs> it is, hope it is, uh, it gives a the most profound answer to the question of the existential problem of people that I know of. All right, I'll stop it there, and uh, we can we can see what uh, what you want to talk about. Thank you. So, the thing I asked before. Mm-hmm. So, how do you explain that one? Would you mind just uh, restating that question? They, they say. Um, God didn't create death. Uh, I think it's like, nor does he like it. That basically says, like, what your God did not create death. Yeah. I think it probably means context, but I don't know. Yeah. I, I think it probably does. I mean, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, he certainly created things that are that are mortal yeah. by nature. So I, I don't I don't think the scripture can be read as denying that. Right? So, I, so how is it to be read? Um, I mean, is, not, is, is the death he's talking about of, you know, bodily death, spiritual death, yeah. right? So there are different senses of life and death. Sometimes life and death is meaning, you know, talking about what, the, the life of the soul, grace in the soul versus the life of, of, of darkness in the soul, right? Which is a different thing. Um, I don't know. Do you have thoughts on that, or no? I just I yeah. don't know. I, I, I thought you might be able to. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you did a pretty good job explaining. Yeah. When you did like the hierarchy of creatures. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it means you know. Yeah. Clearly, God created mortal things, right? Um, yeah. I have a question about um, like the, the package deal thing. You're yeah. About. Yeah. So you're saying that God can't um, necessarily create material universe without having evil in there as a part of the material universe. And that makes sense from what we can see. Yeah. Why should we assume that God would be bound by our understanding of um, how things have to interact in the material world? Why can't God simply create a material world in a way that doesn't necessarily have to obey the laws yeah. that we understand, like the laws of physics or the laws of um, yeah. you know, pred- uh, predatory chain? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, what I guess I want to initially say, I think it's, it's almost just bound up in the concept of, of, of a material substance. So, I mean, Aquinas would think that a material substance is, is a composite of, of form and, and matter, and he thinks that in virtue of, of being a composite of form and matter, it, it can undergo corruption. Uh, it can undergo a, a kind of what you call substantial change, right? And then it inevitably will, right? Unless there's some sort of, you know, something working on it sort of supernaturally or unnaturally, right? So, um, I, in that sense, I mean, I, I think what you would be talking about, these other possibilities, I don't even think they would count as material, in a way they wouldn't even count as material substances as he's understanding them, I don't think. So what they what would they be? I don't know. We have to kind of look at that, you know, whether we can make any sense of it. But I think it's just kind of packed into the very notion of, of what he what he would take a material substance to be. Yeah, um, and it's I should say it's I mean precisely why we think that angels are incorruptible is precisely because they don't have that matter within their composition. Okay. Yeah, um, and so you can infer that they're <laughs> incorruptible just just from from that. Yeah. Um, Let's see. Yeah. You know, I, I wanted to ask about the relationship between um, uh, moral evil uh, amongst abstract beings as opposed to the corruptibility of the material world. Yeah. The old story of Satan uh, being ambitious and a war in heaven of angels, yeah. all of whom are immaterial beings. Yeah. You, I mean, one, one possible observation here is that you can still have pride and ambition and desire to murder yeah. even amongst the, the yeah. immaterial. Yeah. yeah. Um, that doesn't help us yeah. very much because we get saddled with both. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I find the phrase a part of the package. I found myself thinking that before you said yeah. it. It's, it's yeah. really, uh, particularly, all of us are either students or faculty and, and you know, we think, well, we're living on the crust of the earth, and yeah. you know, play tectonics, and if you're going to do that, you're going to have earthquakes, you're going to have landslides, you're going to have yeah. volcanoes, and that's natural evil. Yeah, yeah. And, and so that it almost becomes a, a kind of major premise of the argument. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, the angels, uh, though they are by nature incorruptible and, and don't suffer natural evil, they can certainly uh, uh, commit moral evil, right? Um, and we, we we can commit moral evil and we can supernatural. So you say we yeah we get we get to uh, the cake of both, and then we you know there would be sort of I guess the lower animals and so forth, which we don't hold morally responsible because they don't have an elected will. So they they can suffer natural evil, but they can't really engage in moral evil. So we've got this unique place, right? It's it's sort of one foot in the angelic realm and one foot in the animal realm. Oh, we get it both, yeah. <laughs> uh, some of the stuff about forbidding natural evil and moral evil for the sake of the goods that come out of it seems kind of close to uh, the ends justifying the means. And yeah. So you could say, like, if there's some evil of someone is poor or injured yeah. or something, that gives me the chance for the, the moral good of helping them. Yeah. But why can't I argue that but I'm doing good by ignoring them so that they have the chance to learn patience or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, you, uh, you, you would have. I thought you were going in one direction with that, and, and, and maybe you, you have this in mind as well. I mean, I, some, some people worry when you start talking about God permitting evil for the sake of good, that it comes out to be some sort of utilitarian or consequentialist uh, ethic. Right, uh, I thought about saying... But that's bad, yes. you might think, and so... Um, and I, I just wanted to I just say briefly about that, I mean, I, 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 I don't, I mean, sometimes the ends do justify the means in, in this sense, right? Sometimes I mean, we, we are pursuing good ends, and as long as the means that we're pursuing towards those ends are morally licit, then it's fine that, we're, that those means are chosen for the sake of the end. That's what we do all the time, right? It's only in the case where the means in question would be morally illicit. And the problem with, with I, in my view, with consequentialism and utilitarianism is it doesn't even recognize that there are acts that are just wrong in themselves. It's always you know, going to be the case that it's just whatever is going to maximize good consequences. You know? I mean, so you poke your mom in the eye with, with a pencil or something, and that's, you know, that's somehow in a scenario where it would bring about better effects overall or something. You know, maybe that's too crude of a consequentialism, but that's... Right, I thought about asking, like, what's to stop me yeah. from hurting but, other people so they'll yeah, learn, yeah. learn patience or something, but I felt like that yeah. was too extreme. No, yeah, yeah, I mean, because, um, I mean, you're, there are certain things you need, right, to do. There's a certain way you need to relate to others in order to be, to be virtuous and to live, to live well. And uh, so that, that's actually... To, to help them, right, as much as you can, to act for their good, to promote their flourishing in a world where they're vulnerable, right, and subject to evil. So, uh, I mean, you might, your, your job is not to, uh, to promote their suffering so that they can get whatever benefits that might be gotten from suffering. God might permit that, that there be suffering, Instead, for you to act more like you know the saints Damien and, and and Mother Teresa, right, to come uh, to the assistance and charity of others. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that answers your question, but well, I can still make the argument that that I should let them have the good instead of me. Yeah, yeah. Being well, or something. but I kind of what would be, and the good in their in their case would be. Patience or whatever. Yeah, patience, right. So you're going to be a, yeah, you're going to be a saint maker by <laughs> driving everybody up the wall, right, so they have to be really patient. Yeah. I, right, like. That's my goal with my house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Arguments I think we have a different role in, in this, a different place in this than, than God does, right? So God, uh, in his providence, may create a world in which he permits, say, natural evil, right? And he maybe permits moral evil, right? And among the, the reasons he permits it are these sorts of goods, right? The, the patience of the just, right? And so on. Um, but, but our place in that Right is to 
uh, live according to like the, the natural and divine law, which directs us uh, to love one another and to, to do good to one another, right? Uh, and so um, it's not our job to, um, if we think God hasn't provided quite enough suffering for someone, <laughs> to, uh, to, to step in there. Yeah. Um, that's my, my initial thought. Yeah. Yes. Uh, great question. Yeah, I know, absolutely. But that, so your question, it's almost like the voice of conscience. Like, can you, you live with yourself after those decisions? And I think that, uh, and the thing about angels and man, I, I think uh, man was put on the earth to make the angels look good. Uh, <laughs> and the thing about death was, uh, like, who is to judge that death is evil? Because if we never, none of us ever died, the whole, right, you could just go from there, right, the whole planet. Right? If no one ever dies. So that is death evil? And the judgment of things, like listening to you talking about uh, Thomas's uh, views of a hierarchy of things, which I know I, I argue with that in my own mind, thinking, thinking I don't really believe it. I don't agree with it, not believe it. That something is better because it has more. So that I'm still wrestling with that with Thomas. But that the judgment of evil is the thing that our spiritual development uh, wrestles with. And to certainly help people in need and do what you can not to have any suffering. So I guess it's just that the idea of what, when we judge evil and then if we got a clearer sense of that, yeah. it would cause less suffering. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can have a whole talk on the, just the question of what evil is. I mean, so so Aquinas has things to say about that. You know, he thinks evil is a privation of, of good. So it's it's the lack of, of a good that a thing ought to have according to some standard. And the standard, he thinks, is, is typically its nature, right? So a thing, given the kind of nature that it has, has certain capacities, the realization of which uh, brings about things flourishing, its well-being. And when it's deprived of being able to, to, to realize those capacities in various ways, that's where you have, uh, you have, you have an evil. Um, so now, it's possible for good to be brought out of evil, right? So someone who is, I mean, I, you know, Somebody who has some sort of disability. I, mean, I, I went for four years without basically having no voice. I lost my voice. That was uh, so. Um, I mean, I, I consider that evil. I was deprived of something that I, you know, ought to have if I were in a, in a healthy state. Um, that was an evil, but there were, and there was suffering that came with that for sure. And there were also sorts of goods that I think were brought out of that. So to say that something is an evil is it's lacking something that it ought to have, it, it should have and ought to have given the kind of thing it is. But it doesn't mean, especially in the case of human beings, that um, good for that person can't be brought out of it. And so you might even be grateful in hindsight for an evil suffered, yeah, right? Yeah. You know? 
Well, that evil is as transitory as the good and the material world. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't think the gratitude that you have for the evil stuff, it doesn't mean you don't think it was an evil. Like, if I look back on this, I still think, and that was an, <laughs> that was an evil, right? That was, you know, that was a deprivation, a defect, you know? But but I but there's things, there are aspects about it for which I'm grateful, too, in, in hindsight, you know, so. Because of goods that came, came from it, so. Um, yeah. Has your second argument, the um, the uh, complacency of a totally good world, yeah. would that apply to the afterlife as well? Yeah. So has yeah. heaven have a kind of a, a, a people to yeah. keep us on our toes, say, yeah. you know, and not Yeah, I think um, I think Thomas would say once you reach heaven, the beatific vision, that um, you're now you're now united with God, your final end, the perfect good, and so the, the concern about being distracted by lesser goods, lower goods that are not really your final end, is no longer a concern. In that situation, um, the concern he would have why he might God might permit evil so that we don't become complacent is that we don't we don't uh, mistake the goods of this world uh, for heaven and think that that our end is is simply going to be pursuing good food and drink and a career and you know. Um, Hammocks on the beach. Uh, um, so, yeah. Um, that, and, and we could, right? We could very well become, find ourselves satisfied and complacent with that uh, if that's all we had and we didn't have suffering, right? And that would be a bad thing because, as good as those things are, they're nothing compared to the good for which we were created, the perfect good God. But once we're in union with that perfect good, then you know, obviously that concern about settling for the lesser goods is no longer a concern. So those who reach heaven before they uh, experience this, you know, yeah. through connection, yeah. they kind of just default to that connection? Or they, do, we, do we start with that yeah. and then lose it yeah. and are he, so he thinks that if, if we were, he thinks that our, our will desires the good necessarily, right? And if we were, came encountered something that was lacking in no goodness, that was perfectly, infinitely good without limit, that it would be impossible not to desire it. And it would be impossible to turn away from that perfect good to, to a lesser good. Because no, there would be there would be nothing in any lesser good that was not uh, capable of being satisfied by the perfect infinite good. So, so he acts, so for this reason, uh, Aquinas will think, for example, that it, it's impossible for uh, someone in heaven who has the beatific vision to sin, because sin is always going to be choosing some lesser good 
uh, over God or instead of God, let's say, by choose, you know, going for the creature rather than the creator. Um, so, but then be impossible, right, when you actually uh, are seeing God face to face. Now, we're not, none of us are seeing God face to face, and so it's possible for us. Adam and Eve were not, you know, they weren't created in the beatific vision. If they had been, right, it would not have been possible for them to sin, at least Aquinas thinks. They were created in the state of grace, but not in the beatific vision. The state of grace can be lost. The beatific vision can't be, right? Yeah. And that's just kind of because of the, the nature of the will's inclination towards the perfect good. I think that's really perceptive the business about complacency in heaven. And uh, I think that's really a, a powerful insight. Uh, I think part of what might bear on it is that um, for Dante, certainly, and I, I think for Aquinas, uh, presence in heaven is outside of time, it's in eternity. And complacency is conceived up here as in the material world in time and duration. And so I don't really understand uh, heaven. <laughs> uh, but I, I do see that there are qualitative differences. It's a little hard to know what it, yeah. What's that, what would that be like? Yeah. So, I mean, you, you could, I mean, somebody like Aquinas sort of describes what is involved. I mean, so you, you get a, you get a, a grasp or a vision of, of the perfect good God, um, which is completely fulfills one, right? Uh, and leaves nothing left to be desired. Now, we don't, we don't have any, I mean, even that beach scene, right? We don't quite have any experience like that. Because eventually, even if we're, we're there, right, and it's nice, but I mean, at a certain point, you're going to start getting hungry or, you know, you're going to see the storm clouds off on the horizon, lightning, and you're just like, i got to get out of here, you know? So we don't have that, anything like that sustained, anything like that. So it's very hard to imagine, isn't it? And people who attack... Christianity by attacking the vision of heaven often parody and make fun of what it would be like if you were in heaven yeah. with God wearing a robe and playing a harp and yeah. getting bored and stuff like that. But but they parody it by making it take place in time and duration and making it earthly rather than heavenly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, what, whatever it is, I mean, the last thing it would be is boring, you know. So, I mean, even... Like, you can't possibly imagine exactly what it would be like. The last thing it is is boring, right? Because, I mean, in God is all, I mean, the, the entire world and all the perfection of the entire world and all its variety is, is in God. And not only in this world, but of all sorts of worlds that God could have created that he didn't even create. It's all in God. So anything that fascinates or delights about, this, about the world, right, uh, is there in, in God. I mean, that much is known, but I mean, what that, what that would be like phenomenologically or experientially is wait, wait and see. Um, if there are no more, I'll try and ask one that, I was going to say a quick one, but it probably isn't quick, so I'm uh, repudiating myself there, but um, I really love what you had to say about the ability of suffering moral evil together as an opportunity to share in the priesthood of Christ and I guess I was wondering, kind of basing this off of experience, do we need to see 
like in someone or perhaps even in something like in order for us to be able to actually believe that evil can be redeemable do we need to do we need to have an experience of either someone for us or see it where someone really is acting more good than the evil around them like we need to witness say someone like Damien of Molokai we need to witness someone like Mother, Ther Mother Teresa or you know Christ on the cross do we need to like meet those people who's beyond like as we can see like their goodness exceeds our experience of evil like do we need to see that or do we need to experience that in order to I think I think at least personally actually believe that oh yeah this actually can be acceptable there's someone who does it yeah yeah um, well, I certainly think that it helps, right? It helps to have those models. Um, I mean, I think, I think we need it in order to, uh, to understand that, that point, put some flesh on it, right? That we actually, we actually have witnesses like this that, that show us, um, uh, and then inspire us. It'd be a harder. It'd be harder to to understand or appreciate or find a plausible response if we didn't have it, you know, some examples like that. I think for me anyway. So, yeah. So, thank you. Let's give a final round. Okay. Thank you very much. Right.